You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, a letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. I'd like to study through verse by verse through the uh, text of the scriptures. We are picking up where we left off a few weeks ago in our study of Hebrews. Now, one of the ways that we like to study the Bible here at Whitefields, we like to take a book of the Bible and study right through it from beginning to end, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The reason we like to do that is we believe that is one of the best ways for us to learn and to grow and to hear the entire message that God has for us in a given section of the Bible. And so Hebrews is one of the greatest books in the Bible. It's all about Jesus. It's all about who he is and what he's done and what that means for every area of our lives. So we're going to get into our study again that we uh, started before and we took a break. Now we're continuing this week. We will be reading this morning from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. So if you please read along with me. Our text for today begins like this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and this morning as we read it, as we study it, as we consider it, as we apply it to our lives, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and that you would give us hearts that hear your word and understand it, but also who take that next step and apply it. Lord, may we not only be hearers of your word, may we be doers of it. This morning as we hear your word, Lord, we pray that it would have a transforming effect on our hearts and on our minds, Lord, that truly we would see your glory in these words and as we think about how they apply to our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible defines faith in this way. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. And right there in that definition, we have the primary difficulty that is inherent to having faith. There's an inherent difficulty in faith, and that is this. We don't see. We're trusting, we're hoping in things that we don't immediately see, and that's not always easy to do. The people who this letter was written to were struggling with this very thing to the point where they were becoming discouraged because they weren't seeing the things that they hoped to see. And so they got to the point where they were thinking about taking a step back, backing off on Christianity, or maybe turning their backs on it altogether. The reason was that they had put their faith in a God who they had been told loved them, cared about them, who supposedly heard their prayers when they cried out to him, and yet their lives were characterized by frustration and difficulty. And they were struggling with this question, if God loves me and cares about me, then why aren't my prayers being answered? Why aren't things getting better in my life? 
If God is good, if God is mighty, if God cares about me, then why don't I see more of that in my life? A lot of people today struggle with the same thing. Maybe some of you here today say, I I ask those same questions myself. And you know, you see this happen, that sometimes people check out, so to say, on Christianity because they become discouraged, because they're not seeing the kind of change or progress or the effects in their life from Christianity that they hope to see or expected to see. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You see, the very nature of our faith as Christians is that we have a hope which is deferred. It's a deferred hope. We don't yet see, we don't yet experience the complete fulfillment of it. We know it's coming, but sometimes it feels like it's a long way off. The Bible tells us that one day, one day, truly, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death, no more frustration. That day is indeed coming, but it's not here yet. And as a result, sometimes we look around in the world and we look at our lives and it's easy for our hearts to become sick, to feel sick. It's easy for us to become weary and discouraged and in that place of weariness and discouragement to start to begin to doubt to begin to doubt God's word and to begin to doubt things about who he is and his character. So what's the solution? What do we do in those times when we're tired, when we're discouraged, and when that leads to us struggling with doubts? The text here answers these questions, and here's what it says. There are three things that we see here in this text. First of all, we see the problem. The problem is a problem of seeing and believing. And secondly, the the writer tells us about, he says, okay, here's the root issue. It's an issue of fixation. The root issue is fixation. And thirdly, we see an illustration of what that looks like, a practical way that that looks like, something we can relate to and what that means for our lives. So we're going to talk about that as we go through this. So first of all, we see the problem, seeing and believing. That's the inherent problem. The section actually begins a few verses earlier in verse 11. Verse 11 and 12 say this. He says, we desire each of you to show the same, the same assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish and so that you may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This letter was written to people who are struggling with doubts. Does God care about me? Is, is this Christianity thing even true at all? I believe in God, but all this stuff about Jesus, I don't know because I'm starting to have my doubts. I look at my life and I don't see improvements. I don't see the changes that I expected to see. They were weary and discouraged and their discouragement led them to begin to doubt. How many of you can relate to that in your own life? Maybe for some of you, that's where you're at this morning, today. You're discouraged, you're tired, and as a result, you're starting to have some doubts. And maybe like the people this letter was written to, you've started to kind of Take a step back. You've started to drift away a little bit from Christianity. You've taken a step back from seeking the Lord and pursuing Him. Now, if that's you, if you're struggling with doubts, or if you've ever struggled with doubts, let me tell you this. You're not alone. I've struggled with doubts before. And and when you look at some of the greatest so-called heroes of the faith in the Bible, every single one of them, for the most part, were people who went went through times of struggling with doubt and discouragement. I would go so far as to say this, that anyone who takes their faith seriously will have times when they struggle with doubt and discouragement. And the reason is because the very nature of faith is that we are hoping in something that we don't see. If you could see it, then you wouldn't need faith to believe it. 
right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul tells us, we walk by faith, not by sight. These two are, in a way, set against each other. In his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, Timothy Keller says this about faith and doubt. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and neighbors also. What he's saying is that doubts are not necessarily bad. We should be honest about them, we should acknowledge them, and we should wrestle through them. And we should seek answers to them because they're there. We should seek answers in prayer. We should seek answers by turning and studying the Bible. We should seek answers by talking to other Christians and seeking their input and advice. And here's the thing. If you handle your doubts well, if you respond to them, if you deal with them well, the end result will be that you will end up with a stronger, more robust faith than you had when you entered into it. And you will be better off for doing so. I remember a time in my own life, I was living in Hungary at the time. I had been a pastor for about one year, and I was teaching Bible studies every week, twice a week actually, and I got to this point where I started wondering. I had this kind of nagging thought in the back of my head, and the thought was, do I really believe these things that I'm saying, or am I just saying them because I know that that's the thing that you're supposed to say about this particular passage if you're a pastor? And it really, it was a pretty serious thing that I really struggled with to the point where I, I wondered, I'm not sure, if I'm not sure about this stuff, then I'm not sure that I should be a pastor. And I, and I wondered about it. I knew all the right things to say about all the right places in the Bible. And when it was time to teach a Bible study, I knew what to say, but I had gotten to the point where I wondered, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian. And it was a, it was a bad place to be in, actually, you know. And right at that time, I, we had a trip planned. My wife and I had a trip planned back to the U.S. for six weeks. It was the longest trip we ever took, six weeks away from our church and our home there in Hungary. And I felt that uh, that trip could not have come at a better, more opportune time because I needed to take some time to figure some stuff out. So I remember going to California and staying up one night late and praying and thinking and wrestling through these doubts. And it was like God took my hand and gently walked me through this process of answering these questions that I was having. And almost, I would put it this way, it was almost like he rebuilt my faith from the ground up, starting with the most basic things. Do I believe that there's a God? Well, yeah. Yes, I do believe that there's a God. Okay, well, if there's a God, what's he like? What kind of God is he? And if he is that kind of God, well, then wouldn't this be true about him? And then wouldn't this also then be true about him if that's true? And one by one, I felt like God rebuilt my faith from the ground up. And he just so patiently walked me through that process. And the end result of it was that I came out on the other side with a faith that was much stronger and more robust than it had been before. And I also came away from it with something else. I came away from it with an empathy for other people who struggle with doubts. Because I've been there. I know what it's like. But I also know what it's like to do what the writer of the Hebrews says here in verse 11 of chapter 6, where he says, show earnestness 
to have full assurance of faith. In other words, to not give up, to press through, to wrestle through those questions until you reach the point of assurance. At the end of that quote I read you earlier, the author said this. He said, believers should not only try to understand and wrestle through and acknowledge their own doubts, but they should try to understand and acknowledge the doubts of their friends and neighbors as well. In other words, even if you don't personally struggle with particular doubts, it's important that you try to understand why other people do struggle with those doubts so that with sympathy and compassion, you can enter into their world and walk in their shoes and wrestle with them through those things that they're struggling with so that they can come out on the other side to that point of full assurance. In the short little book of Jude in the New Testament, it's just one chapter long, but there's this very important one-sentence instruction, which for many years I even overlooked. I never noticed it. But here's what it says. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. In other words, be patient with people who struggle with doubts. Come alongside them. Help them to wrestle through those things and come to a place of full assurance of faith. That's what God did in so many of the lives of the people who we read about in the Bible. In verse 12, the writer mentions Abraham. He says, those who through faith and patience inherited the promises of God. Faith and patience. Now, I don't know about you, but those aren't always my favorite things. Faith and patience. Those two things, faith and patience. You know, sometimes I can have faith, but I struggle to have the patience, right? Like I can have faith as long as I see it right now. But having patience is also a big part of having faith. In verse 13, he mentions Abraham as an example of someone who patiently waited in faith for God's promise to him to be fulfilled. But here's the thing about Abraham. If you read the story of Abraham, you'll discover that Abraham constantly struggled with doubt. Constantly, over and over. He was always struggling with doubt. And here's the thing. He wanted to believe. He wanted to trust God. But he struggled to do so a lot of times. And over and over, God would meet Abraham in that place of discouragement and doubt. And God would do something to speak to him or to encourage him to keep going, to keep holding on to that promise in faith. As much as Abraham, we tend to think of him as a hero of the faith. You know who the real hero of Abraham's story is? It's God. It's this God who patiently helped Abraham along each step of the way. It's this God who mercifully comes and meets Abraham in this place and picks him up when he falls and comes alongside him and encourages him to keep going when he's ready to give up. A season of waiting can be a very difficult season. Maybe there are some of you here today and you say, that's exactly the season of life that I'm in. It's a season of waiting. You know, sometimes those are the most intense times of spiritual attack when you're waiting for something because your mind gets bombarded with all kinds of thoughts which are not from God, negative, destructive, evil thoughts from the pit of hell. And during those seasons of waiting and being patient, those are times when it's easy to become discouraged and to begin to doubt. Abraham and his wife Sarah, they had been given a promise by God. They would have a son. From that son would come a nation. And from that nation would come a blessing for the entire world. We know that that refers to Jesus. But for them, the immediate promise was that they would have a son. Now, they were well advanced in years, but they said, hey, we're going to choose to believe God. But as time went on, it became more and more difficult for them to do so. And Abraham and Sarah both struggled with discouragement and doubt. But here's the thing. In Abraham and Sarah, we see two different kinds of doubt. Two different kinds of doubt. And I'll tell you what they are. The first one is sincere doubt, and the second one is cynical doubt. So there's two different ways to doubt. 
cynical doubt and sincere doubt. And at one point, here's what happens in the story. God reiterates his promise to Abraham and Sarah. You're super old, but you're going to have a son. And Sarah, what does she do? She laughs. And God gets very upset about the fact that Sarah laughs. And the reason is because it wasn't a joke, first of all. And second, because it wasn't ha-ha funny kind of laugh. Rather, it was more of a ha kind of laugh, a psh, whatever kind of laugh. It was cynical. It was scoffing. She was essentially saying, look, you know what? I've wasted enough of my time on this. I'm done. I don't believe this anymore. I'm not wasting any more time with this. Abraham, on the other hand, he doubts as well, but he never gets scolded for his doubts. And you wonder, well, was God just, you know, harsher on Sarah than he is on Abraham? No, the deal is Abraham has a different kind of doubt. Whereas Sarah's doubt was cynical, Abraham's doubt was sincere. Abraham's doubt was like the doubt of the man who, who Jesus spoke to. And, and Jesus asked him, do you believe? And the man replied, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. The man was saying, I do believe. I want to believe. I so much want to believe. But the deal is, I have some honest doubts. I have some things that I'm sincerely struggling with understanding and working through. And I need some help to work through it. And throughout the Bible, God is incredibly patient with people who have sincere doubts. Think about Gideon. His story is found in Judges chapter 6 through 8. Gideon. Gideon was called by God to lead the people of Israel during a time when they were being oppressed and harassed by a group of people called the Midianites. Now Gideon was really the most unlikely candidate to be a great leader and a man of faith of pretty much anybody we can imagine. He was a person who was full of fear and he was a person who was completely lacking in faith. When God called Gideon, where was Gideon at? He was hiding in a hole that had been dug in the ground. He's hiding in a pit in the ground from the Midianites because he's scared of them. And God calls him to lead the people, and he makes him a promise. If Gideon will just obey and step out and take the first step, then God will come behind him, God will back him up, and they will be victorious in everything they do. But Gideon says, okay, but uh, I don't know. Like, how can I be sure that you're going to really do that? He says, well, I need you to give me a sign. Now let me just tell you this. What Gideon's doing here, this is not a model to follow. This is not a good thing. It would be much better if Gideon would have taken God at his word. That's always the best. But instead, Gideon asks for a sign. This is a kind of an example of unbelief and doubt of God in asking for a sign. So he says, here's, here's what I want you to do, God. I'm going to, you know, give you a task, basically. You can see, I mean, if I was God, which we can all be glad that I'm not, but if I was God, I would be kind of annoyed at this point, right? He says, okay, I got this piece of wool. I'm going to put it on the ground. In the morning, if the wool is wet and the ground is dry, then I'll believe you. And so, okay, rather than being upset with him, rather than being frustrated, God says, okay, fine. Next morning, the wool is wet, the ground is dry. So Gideon, right, he should be satisfied at this point. He got the sign that he was looking for, but he's not satisfied. So he asks for one more sign. He says, okay, this time, God, I want you to do just the opposite to prove that it's really you. I want you to make the ground wet and the wool dry. Again, if I was God, I would be pretty annoyed at this point. But God is so patient and so merciful with Gideon in his doubt. He meets Gideon in this place of doubt, and he helps him along the way. He helps him to wrestle through this doubt and this fear and come to the point of full assurance of faith. Now, maybe there are some of you who are struggling with discouragement. It's discouragement that has led you to doubt things about God. Maybe uh, you've been struggling to believe. I want you to know this. Doubt is a normal part 
of faith. Because faith, by its very nature, is hoping in and trusting in things which you don't yet see. But here's the thing I want you to know. When you have doubts, it very much matters what you do with your doubts. What you do with your doubts. God is incredibly patient with those who have sincere doubts. He's committed to meeting you where you're at and walking you through those doubts and seeing you through to the other side. But he wants you to do what it says here in verse 11. Not just give up and become cynical like Sarah, but to show earnestness and wrestle through those doubts with God and with others until you come to the place of full assurance of faith. So how do you do that? What does that look like practically? How do you come to full assurance of faith? Well, that brings us to our second point, which is the root issue here. The root issue is one of fixation. Have you ever been fixated on something? You ever seen somebody who was fixated on something where it becomes the only thing that you think about, the only thing that occupies your thoughts? You become fixated. What the writer's talking about here, he's telling us, that the root issue when it comes to discouragement and doubt is a matter of fixation. The question is, what are you fixated on? Are you fixated on your circumstances? Are you fixated on yourself? Then of course you'll be discouraged. Of course you'll be full of doubts. But if instead, if you will shift your fixation away from yourself, away from your circumstance, if you will fix, fixate yourself on who God is, what he has done, and, and his character then your discouragement and your doubt will be replaced with encouragement and faith. Think about these stories that we talked about. This is exactly what was happening in each one of these stories. Gideon was timid. He was fearful because he was fixated on himself. He knew that he didn't have what it takes. And it, it was only when he got his eyes off of himself and his inabilities and his shortcomings and he put his eyes on God and God's ability to do anything, that was when his discouragement turned to encouragement, his doubt turned to faith. Think about Sarah in our story. Sarah scoffed because she was fixated on herself, on her inability to do this thing. And that was precisely the problem. She was fixated on herself, on her circumstance, instead of being fixated on the promise of God and the God who made the promises. The same is true in my life and your life. Discouragement and doubt are the result of getting fixated on ourselves and our circumstances. One of the great themes of this letter to the Hebrews is the importance of fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking to him, who he is, what he has done. And that's exactly what the writer tells the people he's writing to here. People who have become discouraged, who are struggling with doubt. He says, here's why you should be encouraged. I'll give you two reasons. Because God has made a promise, and God, secondly, has sworn by an oath. And you know what he says in verse 18? I'm going to give you a third reason. Because God cannot lie. It is impossible for him to lie. So let's think about ourselves. What are some of the promises that God has made us? He has promised that all those who come to him through Jesus Christ, he will by in no means cast away. He has promised that all those who put their trust in Jesus and what he did, he placed on him all the guilt, all the shame, all the judgment that my sins and your sins deserved. And he said, in him, this will be a bridge to bridge that impossible gap between me, a holy God, and you, a flawed person. And God says, if you come to me through Jesus, I will forgive your sins, but that's not all I will do. I'll redeem your life, I'll put my spirit inside of you, and I'll transform you. He has promised that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. He's promised that he will hear you when you pray and he will do what is absolutely best for you, even if you might not understand in the moment why it's the best for you. He's promised that if you are his, he will be absolutely committed to seeing you through and never giving up on you. 
These are his promises to you. He has sworn them by an oath that he will keep them. In the ancient world and in our world even today, you take an oath to confirm a promise, to say that you will in fact do what you have said you will do. We do that in court. We take oaths. We do that when we get married. Here in the U.S., we place our hand on a Bible in court. Sometimes people will say things like, I swear on my mother's grave, things like that. But think about this. If you're God, then who do you swear by? Who do you, do you, do you put your hand on the Bible? You know, you swear on your mother's grave? No, you can't do that. So what does God do? It says here in our text, God swears by his own name, by his own character. In other words, God swore to God that he would absolutely keep these promises. And if that weren't enough, don't forget that by his very nature, he cannot lie. And here's what that means for me and you. Regardless of how you feel today about these promises, God's going to keep them either way, regardless of how you feel. Now, I hope that you're having a, a wonderful, pleasant day and that you have a great sense of God's love and favor and blessing on your life and that you have a great confidence in God that he's going to keep his promises. But if you don't, he's still going to keep them. His promises are still sure. The best thing you can do right now is acknowledge that the promises of God and the strength of his oath are stronger than your feelings. One of the greatest cures for discouragement and doubt is to get your eyes off of yourself and to fix your eyes on Jesus. In Matthew chapter 14, we read about a time when Jesus had sent his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, and he said he'd catch up with them later. It was right after he fed the 5,000. And so they get in the boat, you know, it's evening, probably twilight, and they start to head off, and they get caught in a terrible storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Waves are beating against the boat. They're in the middle of the sea. They're very far from the shore. The sun has now gone down, and they're in big trouble because if the waves start to come over the edge of their boat, they start to fill up their boat with water, if their boat sinks, they're toast. There's no way that they're going to be able to swim back to shore from there. But then it says this. It says that in the fourth watch of the night, the fourth watch of the night, by the way, is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. You know what that means? That means that they've been out on the water in the midst of a storm just getting slammed and hammered for about eight hours at this point. They've just been getting just beaten. You know, this boat is just getting beaten by these waves for eight hours. They're exhausted. And here it says that they saw Jesus walking to them on the water. And Peter, I love this guy, what does he do? He says, Lord, if that's you, then call me to come out to you on the water and I'll come out. And Jesus said, all right, come. So Peter, we read, gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water and come to Jesus. It's incredible. But look at what happens next. It says, when Peter saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. This story is an illustration of the very point we're talking about. Peter here, he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to fixate on the circumstances around him. The wind, the waves, his own inability to do what Jesus has called him to do. And he begins to sink. It's a perfect picture of what we're talking about. What are you fixated on? Yourself and your circumstances or God and his promises? But here's the other thing. I don't think that we should be too hard on Peter. It's really easy, you know, to look down your nose at Peter and be like, oh yeah, wind and waves, shouldn't have done that, bro. Next time, definitely don't do that. It's really easy for us to do that. But here's the thing I want you to see about Peter. 
Peter once again, how's this story end? It ends with Peter once again fixing his eyes on Jesus. He realizes he can't pull himself up. He's sinking, he's drowning, he's made a mess of things. He doesn't have what it takes, but Jesus does. And so he calls out to Jesus, and Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and takes hold of him. So let me ask you this. What are you fixated on today? Are you fixated on your own shortcomings, your failures, your mistakes, your past sins? Or maybe you're fixated on the wounds and the hurts that other people have inflicted upon you, the things that other people have done to you and how you're wounded and hurt. Maybe you're fixated on that. Maybe you're fixated on some difficult circumstance in your life right now or an uncertain future that you're anxious about. Maybe these things have led you to a place of discouragement in your life. Let me encourage you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fixate on who he is. Fixate on what he has done. Fixate on his character, his might, his power, his faithfulness, his truth. And here's what it says in verse 18. What he has promised to those of us who have fled to him for refuge fled to him for refuge. And he says, if you do that, verse 18, you will find strong encouragement as you hold fast to the hope that is set before you in Jesus. And the third thing we see in this text is an illustration. An illustration, and the illustration is that of an anchor. We see that in verses 19 through 20. The hope that you have in God and in his strength, in the strength of his oath, here's what it's like. It's like an anchor for your soul. That's what the writer says. See, here's the thing. Following Jesus doesn't insulate you from having stormy seasons in your life. Times when your life is rocked. Times when you have ups and downs as you ride the waves of this life. It doesn't insulate you from that. But here's what following Jesus does give you. It gives you an anchor. It gives you an anchor of hope that is set down in firm rock. Maybe there's some of you here today and you say, you know what, this is me. I struggle with discouragement because I'm not seeing the kind of things in my life that I would like to see. Think about an anchor. Here's the thing. An anchor is only doing its work when you don't see it. Do you realize that? That's why it's such a perfect parallel here. An anchor is only doing its work when you don't see it. And even though you don't see it, over time you do feel and sense and see its effects that it is working. For an anchor to work, there are two things that are required. Number one, it has to be grounded in something. And number two, you have to be attached to it. So it has to be grounded in something. I, you know, a lot of people in our culture today, they talk about having faith as this kind of like generic, general kind of faith. Uh, you know, we say things like, hey, you just got to have faith, right? Or we say, you know, faith is very important to me in my life. But faith in what? Like, if it's just generic, then what is it faith in? I saw a sign in someone's home, you know, it illustrates this point. It said, faith, family, and friends. Great, I think that's awesome. But what is that faith in? It can't just be faith for the sake of faith. You see, unless it's grounded in something, it, it, will, it won't do its effect. It has to be grounded in something that's stable and immovable. Imagine with me, if you had an anchor, and there it is on the deck of your ship, and you look at that anchor, and it's a fine anchor. You, you polish it, you show it off. When people come over, you're like, check out my anchor. I got this anchor, and it's great. But I'll tell you what, as long as that anchor is not grounded in something, it's not going to do you any good at all. In the same way, it's not going to do you any good to just have some kind of generic faith. You have to answer the question, what is your faith in? What are you trusting in? What are you anchored to? And this text tells us, your anchor needs to be firmly grounded in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. 
That's what's being talked about in verses 19 and 20, where it talks about how Jesus has entered in to the inner place behind the curtain. That's a reference to the Jewish temple. In that inner place behind the curtain, that is the place where atonement was made for the sins of the people. And it's saying this, that Jesus has entered into that place and he has made atonement for our sins through his death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was cast into the storm of God's judgment. He was plunged into the depths of judgment and death on your behalf so that you might be raised up, so that you might experience fellowship with God and forgiveness of your sins and redemption and life. And he entered into that storm for you on your behalf in order that he might become a refuge for you from the storm. The message of the gospel is that your sins are a much more serious thing than you tend to think they are. But yet, God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And because God loves you, he left his heavenly throne. He took on human flesh. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you should have died in order to secure for you a salvation that is sure and that is immovable. And if you will anchor yourself and your life in what he did for you, then in the midst of the ups and downs of the waves of this life, you will be able to remain grounded, unmoved, stable, and secure. If you try to anchor your life in anything else, it won't be secure. It'll be like putting your anchor down in sand. It'll just get moved around and dragged along all over the place. You need to be anchored in the rock, Jesus Christ, the finished work of what he did for you on, his, on your behalf. The other thing that's required for an anchor to work is this, and we can't miss this. You have to be attached to the anchor. So imagine a bunch of sailors on a ship, and a, a, here comes this storm. It's a perilous situation. And they all get together, and they grab the anchor, and they throw it overboard. But there's no chain attached to it. It could be the best anchor in the world. It could be attached to the greatest thing in the world. But it's not going to do you a bit of good if you're not attached to the anchor. You see, Jesus said that in order for you to see the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. To be born again means that you have established your connection to that anchor. And let me ask you this today. Do you have that connection? The way that you do that, the way that you establish that connection is by repenting and believing. Repentance means disconnecting yourself from all the lame anchors that you have trusted in and, and tied yourself to in the past. And by faith, connecting yourself to the true anchor. Jesus Christ, grounding yourself in what he has done for you. When you do that, the Bible says, you pass from death to life, from old to new, and you receive God's promise, the sure promise that he has confirmed by his oath. One of the things that an anchor does is that it keeps you from drifting. Maybe there's some of you here today, and you've been drifting. That's you. That's where you're at. Think about a boat that's not attached to an anchor. It's over time, it's just going to be slowly drifting. Think about if you've ever done like stand-up paddle boarding. If you just stay in one place, if you don't do anything, you're going to drift over time by the current, by the waves. And a lot of people, that's exactly where you're at spiritually. Over time, you've kind of just drifted away. You know what you have to do in order to drift? Nothing. That's exactly it. If you do nothing, you won't stay in one place. You will drift from where you were. Maybe at one point in your life, you were in a relationship with God, and it was good, and it was strong, but you're no longer in that place because you've been doing nothing, and you've drifted. See, so here's the thing. You need to attach yourself to that anchor. 
But one last thing I'll say about this. Anchors not only keep you from drifting, but, but the anchor is also there to help you move forward. It's, it's an interesting thought. Uh, I found this out this week, that there's a move that sailors do from time to time. If they get caught on a sandbar, for example, what they'll do is they'll use their anchor to help them get unstuck, to help them get out of that rut that they're in, to help them move forward and get unstuck. And what they'll do is, so they'll drop their anchor and they'll wait for it to set. And then they'll reel, they'll pull themselves towards the anchor and they'll use the anchor as a way of getting themselves unstuck from a place that they're stuck in. And I think that's an important picture for us, that this anchor isn't there just to keep us from drifting. It's there to help us move forward. That's been our theme for this year, by the way. Forward to what lies ahead. How do we take those steps as a church? How do we take those steps as individual Christians? forward to what God has for us ahead. Like I said, the anchor is there not only to keep you from drifting, it's to help you get out of that rut, to help you from drifting. You need an anchor, and the anchor you need is Jesus Christ. So today, anchor yourself in him and what he has done for you. Fix your eyes on him and draw near to him, and may we find strong encouragement in that today. Amen? Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the anchor for our souls. Our hope in you is an anchor for our souls. Lord, I pray for those of us today who say, you know what, that's me. I've been struggling with doubt and discouragement. Lord, may we find strong encouragement in who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, thank you that your promises are true and that you cannot lie. May we truly find encouragement in those promises today and may we trust in them. Lord, I pray for those of us today who are stuck. We're in a rut. We don't know how to move forward. Lord, may we draw ourselves near to you by like pulling in that anchor. And in doing so, Lord, we pray that you would set us free from the ruts that we're in and help us to move forward in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.